Thank you for tuning in to another edition of Heartland History, the podcast of the Midwestern History Association. And now here's your host, John Lauk. Welcome to another edition of Heartland History. I'm your host, John Lauk. We are coming to you today from the Minnesota Historical Society in St. Paul, Minnesota. And our guest today is Bill Green, who is a professor of history at Augsburg College here in the Twin Cities. Welcome, Bill. Thank you. Nice to be here. Bill, why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, your recent book and uh, your time at Augsburg and uh, what you did prior to getting to Augsburg? Sure. Well, um, I came to Minnesota hundreds of years ago, it seems like, to go to college and uh, felt initially like my parents were punishing me for being me, uh, that this was a place where I couldn't get in trouble. And uh, so as soon as graduation came around, I was, I, I assumed, I imagined that I would be leaving the state, except I began to fall in love with it. Um, it was sort of a, a place that didn't have the color that I was used to. I was from New Orleans. Um, but I was, I was always surrounded, it felt like, with um, questions. I had a lot of questions, but there were a few answers. People didn't really talk about their own history. And in a state where there are so few people of color, especially African, well, African Americans, I should say, um, it was as if the state did not have any African American history at all. So in reading the, the canon, Minnesota history, I would find references and footnotes, veiled references of such things as, well, a slave trial that occurred in Minneapolis, 1860, and very little scholarship around it. And, um, but that pricked my, my curiosity. That made me want to look a little bit more deeply. I had to learn how to look at a history that's basically written in gray, written in the shadows. I had to learn how to really listen to the unspoken words, and um, slowly I was able to piece material together. Now I knew I was on to something, that is to say the history of African Americans in Minnesota, but in particular the, the, the history of civil rights in Minnesota. I knew I was on to something special, because this was after all a state that, um, um, that gave the nation Hubert Humphrey in a sense. Um, as a, as a child of the 50s and the 60s, and as the child of parents who were politically involved, I was familiar, probably more than most, with even the agricultural secretary, Orville Freeman, uh, a Minnesotan. And um, I, of course, who didn't know of the Minnesota Vikings? Uh, so I had some sense of Minnesota as a place, but nothing much more than that. And yet there were enough things hanging around, enough personages out there um, to tell me that there was a history here worth, worth, worth un, uh, unearthing. Um, as I got into the research, I found that uh, even though Minnesota was on the verge, especially in the community of Minneapolis-St. Anthony, with regard to the slave trial that existed, that created quite a bit of disturbance in the neighborhood, in the community, so that for weeks after the decision had been rendered to free the slave woman, uh, Minneapolitans walked the streets with loaded weapons, poised, 
for the slightest provocation to open up against their neighbors. And what's noteworthy of that um, is that we were looking at Kansas bleed itself, it seemed to death. And so there was a fear, especially in Washington, that Minnesota may become another bleeding Kansas. That's just how severe it was. And this was going to take place in a state that had banned slavery in the state constitution over the issue of slavery. This was the thing that was really noteworthy, interesting to me. Um, years later, after the Civil War, um, what also made the place special was the fact that the, the state had tried three times, the third time it succeeded, in passing a suffrage bill that extended the right to vote to African-American men, that extended the notion of citizenship to African-American men. And what was noteworthy about that, because other states had done that, was that it was done by popular vote, that the white men of Minnesota had decided, as a result of their leadership, who said that this is, this is critical to who we are going to be as a state, um, they decided to expand the suffrage to people who they didn't know and didn't totally respect. Um, just, we, just months after the, the referendum was passed in 1868, um, the legislature then uh, sponsored a bill that became law that basically said that if school districts segregate or discriminate on the basis of race, they will lose state funding. For all intents and purposes, that was the end of official school segregation. That was noteworthy to me. Um, so, and then you kind of jump forward. I mean, this is, this is also the state where um, the leaders of the modern civil rights era, W.E.B. Du Bois and Ida B. Wells and T. Thomas Fortune, the dean of black journalism, and Booker T. Washington, this is the place where they came in 1902 to basically talk about an agenda for a modern civil rights era, for a modern civil rights initiative. And they came here and met in the state capitol. The legislature opened up the chambers for black people to come in and talk about civil rights during a time when African Americans were being pilloried, denigrated, and, and, and lynched. So that's another element of Minnesota history that I found to be very, very compelling. This is the place where Roy Wilkins came to go to school and where he got his launch into civil rights activism. Uh, this is also the place where, where, where uh, Whitney Young, who was president of the National Urban League in the 60s, came to go to school and he got his sense of, of, of political um, activism. Uh, and it goes on and on and on and on. Um, the, the, the governor of the state of Minnesota was also president of the NAACP, or would be by, by, by 1920. Um, so there are all sorts of reasons to, 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 to find, to, 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 to view Minnesota as an exceptional state. And, it, and I think many, it has an exceptional history in one sense. Looking more closely at those events, um, in trying to understand how, how that, 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 that legacy got planted, um, I found some unexpected things. I found, for example, that, um, that, that Minnesotans, Minnesota leadership, for example, 
had um, taken seriously its duty to extend political equality to African Americans, but feeling that once that had been done, deciding that once that had been done, um, that nothing more needed to be done. So the sense that the ballot was all that you need to acquire opportunity uh, basically permitted the uh, patrons, political, white political patrons, to abandon their, their black colleagues. That racism was something to be overcome. That racism was nothing different than, was, 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 was not unlike a bank or a business turnaround or even grasshopper infestations. You know, it was something to be pursued to, to be overcome. And that racism provided a, a, a challenge that you need to have if you're going to be showing and, and, and developing character. Um, there wasn't a lot of consideration for the corrosive effect of racism. Um, and so you had, uh, you had friends of the African American basically backing away uh, from any other need to, to deal with the issue of discrimination. And this is key because um, this isn't just an issue of, of people speaking ill of black people, saying negative things on the street or anything like that. This was about whether an individual could get a job. This was about whether an individual, an African-American, who had the money to pay for a farm could get a farm. They could only get it if a person who had the land to sell was willing to sell to a black person, and they weren't. Um, African-Americans looking for skilled laborers typically had to go to a white person or had to rely upon a white person to provide special skills and to grant them an apprenticeship. But those <coughs> apprenticeships were not given to African-Americans. They were given to, to, to other people, uh, same ethnic class or, or whatever. So African Americans lost that opportunity to really evolve, to develop economically. Um, at the same time, uh, discrimination was accepted. Even the, 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 the white patrons of, of, of black rights uh, participated in discriminatory policies. And so... Um, the African-American in Minnesota was faced with a dilemma. These are the people who freed me. <laughs> These are the people who campaigned to grant me political rights. But I still can't get there. Does this, does this show uh, what the former slaveholder has always said about me? Do I show myself to be ungrateful? for all the good things that white folks have done. And so there was a disinclination to really be candid about what else was needed. On the other side of the spectrum, with the white patron, the white patron not hearing um, the issues confronting African Americans, having a rather one-sided sense of the, of, the, of the experiences that black people experience, and feeling that these were not major issues um, basically only believed what they heard and what they saw. And if they didn't hear any conversation explaining anything, then they assumed that there was no problem. And so you see the evolution in the sense of a parallel universe. You know, blacks on one side, whites on the other. 
Um, African Americans constrained with the need to be grateful. Uh, whites holding like the sort of Damocles over, over African Americans, the imperative to be grateful. Uh, and so you have this kind of benevolent uh, veneer evolve. That to me, I think, was a factor that contributed to the to the uh, infamous or maybe famous character trait of Minnesota being put, uh, 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 what is it, Minnesota nice? I think that was kind of <coughs> an element that contributed to this thing. Let me ask you, let's go back for a second sure. to the slave trial you mentioned that caused the uh, commotion in Minneapolis. Um, I've read a little bit about this trial, but I think it's worth uh, talking about just a little bit more. So this was a trial to free a uh, an African-American woman, and was the basis of the legal proceedings whether or not the Minnesota Constitution required her to be freed since she was living in Minnesota, or what exactly was the context of the trial? She, she was a slave brought up by her master, Richard Christmas, the slave woman in, 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 we're talking about is Eliza Winston. Um, Eliza Winston and her master and mistress were living in the Winslow House, which was, is, which was located where the present-day Winslow House condominiums are located over in St. Anthony on the Main, in, in that, that area of Minneapolis. She uh, was on an errand for her mistress where she saw an African-American woman who had a business and seemed to be respected by, by her, and was respected by her white neighbors. And the slave woman said, I want to be like you. I want to be free. Uh, being in Minnesota, there was a sense that perhaps this could happen. Um, this was three years after Dred Scott, however, that had decided that, no, she was going to be a slave no matter where she was taken. But um, this was the frontier. And laws were a little bit more, um, they were negligible <laughs> in the sense if you had enough people backing you up. Um, she wanted to go free. Emily Gray, the free black woman who was the model, the ideal form of, of freedom, told her friends who were abolitionists. And they formed a posse. And they rode out. And they, they, she, Mrs. Gray, the black woman, the free black woman, actually confronted the, the, the slaveholder's wife and said, look, this is what we're here to do. And they brought the slave woman into court. This is something that you, don't, you didn't always see in the North, but, but increasingly the freeing of slaves on the, on, the, on the threshold of Civil War was done in the courtroom. And sometimes. <laughs> And uh, in this case, uh, the, she was brought into a courtroom. Uh, Charles <coughs> Vandenberg, the judge, um, uh, heard the case. The courtroom was packed with people who worked for the tourism trade and had a lot at stake. Um, the attorney representing the slaveholder, uh, John Freeman, a great name for a, uh, the attorney for a slaveholder, who was also attorney general for the state of Mississippi and a native New Yorker, uh, uh, made the case that federal law preempts state law uh, and pointed recently to the decision of Dred Scott, said that this slave woman cannot be freed. She belongs to her master. The attorney representing the slave woman got up and basically said, yes, this is yes, that is federal law, but this is Minnesota. 
And the provision of the state constitution says that slavery cannot exist and she should go free. The attorney representing the slaveholder argued this case for about 20, 30 minutes, steeped in federal law, and the, that provision of the constitution says that federal law preempts the state law. The attorney representing the slave woman got up and spoke for about three or four minutes. When he sat down, the judge ruled in favor of freeing the slave woman. The judge and the attorney for the slave woman were law partners. They would serve together on the state Supreme Court. They were friends. But I, I can imagine that Judge Vandenberg was applying the law as he understood it as well. In any event, when the decision was reached, um, there was a riot. And it would continue to uh, fester for, 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 for several, several weeks, well into 1861, until finally news arrived at the Confederate attack of Fort Sumter. But to answer your question, it was, it was, not, it was not really a case of, 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 a, of determining whether Dred Scott was good law or not. It was not even really a case determining whether, in fact, that provision of the Constitution that says that federal law preempts state. That was not the issue. This was, this was frontier justice. Um, these were folks who were willing to use the law to create the veneer of propriety. But um, the bottom line was to free the slave woman. You also mentioned this 1902 meeting at the state capitol in which uh, Ida B. Wells and Du Bois and Booker T. Washington, et cetera, gathered in Minnesota. Mm -hmm. So this was a purposeful decision, yes. intentional decision to go to Minnesota. Mm -hmm. And that was because Minnesota was seen as a, an exceptional state, as you say, in terms of being more friendly to civil rights? Absolutely. It, it was uh, strangely, and I may, it may be 1904, but it's 1902, 1904, early part of the, of the 20th century. Um, Minnesota, um, well, it, it had more black lawyers here per capita, <laughs> which is an interesting trait. There are so many black attorneys in Minnesota, and I put all that in quotation marks that when Charles Scrutchen, for example, from Michigan came to St. Paul, he was encouraged to, to move to Bemidji and open a practice because there were already too many attorneys in, in the Twin Cities. Mm. And he did, and it was a thriving practice, and he was an African-American. Um, so Minnesota, by the turn of the century, was perceived as a, as a, a good place for, for the black middle class or African-Americans aspiring to the middle class to come. Um, it was a place where you didn't have the, the aggressive anti-black sentiment that you, that you saw sweeping the country and increasingly sweeping the North. You didn't see that uh, as much. Um, it was a place where African-Americans could basically dissolve into the pu public landscape, in effect. Uh, and, and that's preferable because it doesn't draw attention to yourself. Uh, and that's, that's the benefit of being a very small population. But at the same time, as a small population, you're more vulnerable. Um, but the leaders of the state were accessible. I put that in quotation marks, but they returned <coughs> phone calls. Um, there was at least a, a nod to, um, uh, to viewing the African-American as the preferred people 
uh, that they're going to uh, take care of for all intents and purposes. Minnesota is unique also historically in that it has an extremely large Scandinavian population that many other states don't have. Right. Does that have some role in contributing to this more favorable environment for civil rights here? No, that doesn't really begin to take place until much <coughs> later. Um, the, the, the Swedish population, for example, um, virtually triples within a period of three to four years in the, 19, in the 1890s so that the population you know, outstrips the population that you see even in Chicago or in New York. I mean, it's, it, it grows very quickly. But the Scandinavians did not, uh, during this time period, view African Americans with any kind of favor. Um, and that temperament would, would, would continue well into the 1930s, 1940s. Um, the, uh, I think probably the most uh, reliably uh, supportive ethnic group were the, the old stock those of English um, descent, those who came to Minnesota from upstate New York, New England. Um, most other ethnic groups did not uh, share that same kind of affinity uh, with African Americans. Tell us uh, the title of your book and how long you worked on it and how it came to be. Uh, the title is uh, Degrees of Freedom, Origins of Civil Rights in Minnesota, uh, 1863, I think, 1865 to 1912. Um, the, the, the title comes from the notion that um, African-Americans had political rights and were free to exercise their citizenship in terms of being able to vote. But... Um, it was, also, it was always provisional. It was always conditional. Um, the African American, uh, in order to be safely ensconced in society, needed to know where his boundaries were. And um, for those who were seeking to advance a civil rights agenda, um, those leaders had to constantly be mindful of how far was too far in pushing the agenda because the worst thing that they could do would be to alienate their patrons. And that was always a threat. That was always a threat, even more so than attracting any kind of reprisal from a mob or from the Democratic Party, which had been hostile to, to African Americans for, for the 19th century. Um, so it was always a dancing act. The way that the party leaders would, would, would uh, express disfavor if black leaders went too far, went, became too militant, um, was to withhold any kind of financial support and access. So it would be chilled. There would be a chill that would be cast over um, the African-American, the white and African-American relationship. Uh, and it was enough to oftentimes threaten jobs and businesses and things of that nature. Certainly access to uh, policy makers, uh, things of that nature. But that's, that's one of the character traits of, of racial politics in Minnesota. Um, you didn't typically see or need the constant presence of violence to keep people in control. Um, the African American, being few in numbers, um, recognized 
how vulnerable he was, especially if they're a middle class. To be a middle class African American in Minnesota at this time, your customer base necessarily must be white, predominantly. And so um, the clientele had another modifying effect. And yet these, this was the classroom which uh, civil rights leaders would come. So the purpose of the book is really to, to, was, was really to examine the notion of, of being daring while, watching, while walking a tightrope, um, while exercising the freedom of a person of conscience, but within the confines of degrees, because there were unspoken rules and sometimes spoken rules that was to be maintained. And sometimes those rules were enforced not just by, by white patrons, but by blacks themselves. You're listening to Heartland History. I'm your host, John Lauk. Today we are talking to Bill Green, professor of history at Augsburg College in Minnesota. His new book is entitled Degrees of Freedom. It's a history of African Americans and civil rights in Minnesota from 1865 to 1912. Uh, Bill, I noticed that your uh, book ends about 1912, um, and prior to that, period of time, I assume the numbers of African Americans in Minnesota in general would have been fairly small. And I assume in the next decade or so, the Great Migration brings a lot of African Americans to Minnesota. Is that correct? Yes, but nothing like what we are more <clears throat> familiar with with regard to Chicago and Detroit and other northern cities, certainly New York. Um, that, that point of demarcation really reflects uh, a time when the um, civil rights leadership uh, began to fully embrace the NAACP. The NAACP formed in 1909 was, was viewed as a much more radical organization. In fact, it wasn't. But uh, because the, 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 the paradigm of the time for, for uh, black rights or black the welfare of African Americans was defined by Booker T. Washington, and um, the NAACP was viewed with hostility by the Bookerites, as they were called, those who supported Booker T. Washington. And because Booker T. Washington had contacts, both monetary as well as political and economical contacts, he was a very, very powerful person. Many of the leaders in Minnesota who who were involved with civil rights knew that they could not alienate um, Booker T. Washington. By 1912, uh, Washington's hold on the black leadership weakens. Um, it's also a time when one of the key uh, players, and he's, he's a person who I um, really kind of highlight in the, the last third of the book, uh, Frederick McGee, um, where he begins to disassociate himself with Booker T. Washington. Frederick McGee is an interesting person. Uh, this is near the time, 1912 is just a couple years before he dies himself. But by this time, he, he has become a national uh, leader. He is the confidant of Du Bois, who would come to Minnesota to raise funds for, for his, his ventures. And it was one such vacation or trip when, when McGee told Du Bois, we need to have 
a new organization. So he encourages Du Bois to start the Niagara Movement, which is the predecessor or the precursor of the NAACP. What I'm trying to characterize here is that while initially uh, McGee is an outlier, um, his activism, his contacts with the radicals of the civil rights movement, who included Ida B. Wells and Booker T. and uh, Du Bois, his 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 philosophy, his insistence, his his, his speeches, his agitation, um, all began to wear down the fortress that existed around the Bookerite presence in Minnesota. So that by nineteen by nineteen twelve. Um, African Americans are beginning to feel, the leadership is beginning to feel like it needs to separate itself, themselves from, from, uh, from Booker T. Washington and to assume a much more aggressive approach. At the Midwestern History Association, as a general matter, we try to promote studies of the Midwest as a region. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the most encouraging things in the last few years, I think, is the growing attention to civil rights and African-American history in the North and in Midwestern states in particular, although it's not always framed that way, but that is uh, the, the result of it, and this would include your new book. Um, but to carry on with your theme about degrees of freedom, one thing that people have pointed out is, and I, I, this rings true to me, tell me if you think uh, this is accurate, that a place like Minnesota would be seen in the region of the Midwest as perhaps the most progressive on civil rights, whereas a state like Indiana would be seen as the most regressive. And there are degrees of difference between the rest of the Midwestern states. What is your sense of where these Midwestern states fall in terms of how they treat civil rights? That's a, that's a wonderful question. Um, I believe it was Burringer. Eugene Berenger, could have been Jacques, um, I can't remember his last name. Um, but one of those historians uh, made reference to the states in the Midwest who shared borders with the slave states tend to be much more conservative. And he was referring, they were referring specifically to Illinois, Indiana, uh, Ohio to a large extent. Um, Richard Dreyks. Dykstra uh, in Black, was it Radical Black Star? Bright, bright Radical Star. Bright Radical Star. Uh, Iowa um, basically makes the same point. Uh, certainly prior to the 1850s, uh, Iowa also had a very conservative um, <clears throat> uh, policy towards uh, African Americans because it in part shared the border with, with slaveholding Missouri. Um, I think that by virtue of being geographically removed from slaveholding territory uh, contributed to the uh, reduction of anti-black sentiment if you define anti-black sentiment in terms of the intensity we see in those other states. Now, Minnesota did have anti-black sentiment. Um, it had always had anti-black sentiment. I was, I was doing some research on another project where uh, the earliest county 
of Minnesota, St. Croix, which was then a part of Wisconsin, um, voted against suffrage almost 120, well, not almost, 126 to 1. Um, Anti-black sentiment was, was, was deep in, in Minnesota. The, the question is, how did Minnesota you know, go beyond that, that stage? Because after all, a lot of people from those lower Midwestern states came to Minnesota. They would bring with them their biases. I think that when you consider that Minnesota was not viewed to be good plantation, Work, and it was kind of out of the, um, uh, the, the out of the mainstream. Uh, it, it was not. It didn't have mines, for example, lead mines that that would draw slaveholders uh, to the region like Wisconsin had, um, uh, where it was much more the, the perception of Minnesota as a Siberia, and actually it was termed that. Uh, discourage people from viewing Minnesota as a large plantation, a potential for, for large plantation. Those elements contributed. And you also had um, in Minnesota, which you didn't have in other states, and that was the notion of cheap labor. This was a fur company, and, and the lumbermen came in, but the fur company, um, the trappers relied on Native Americans and mixed blood peoples another per people of color. Um, and they were, they were viewed as inferior people. So they were the, uh, they were Minnesota, early Minnesota's version of the, of, the, of, of the chattel from the South, although they weren't slaves per se. So, but, but my point is that there wasn't a need for, for, for African Americans to do the cheap labor as much. There were enough other non-blacks to do labor that had been relegated to blacks in other states. One uh, other factor, I think, in terms of distinguishing between Midwestern states is the in-migrant population. Uh, for example, uh, Minnesota, Michigan, in, it, in their early years, had big influxes of Yankees and New Englanders and people who would tend to be abolitionists, or at least would be supportive of this. Whereas states like Indiana, which they call the most southern Midwestern state, had a huge influx of Southerners yeah. who would carry with them a much more discriminatory culture. And you can also see this in Indiana in terms of the Indiana counties where there were large Quaker populations that moved in from Pennsylvania. Those tend to, tended to be the abolitionist areas. Right. Um, so I think who settled these Midwestern states has a major influence Absolutely. on... Absolutely. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you talk about Indiana, the same thing applies to, to, to Illinois to a large extent. Um, in the southern parts of those states, um, you see a lot of people, especially the yeoman farmer types, coming out of Kentucky. And they're, they're moving into these regions because they've been dispossessed from the slaveholding areas. And so they have an animus against slavery but they also see the slave as the embodiment of that institution. And so they want to create a society that doesn't allow the slave to come in. Um, so they're going to pass black codes. They're going to pass, and the, and the same thing in Ohio. There's an effort to try to pass a black code in Minnesota, 1854. Um, 
And that story is kind of interesting. It doesn't, I don't talk about it in degrees of freedom. I talk about it someplace else. But um, it was defeated. That effort was defeated. Um, but the elements contributing to why a black code was even desired in Minnesota was very much reflective of, of the mood of, uh, you know, spreading across the north. I think what makes Minnesota unique uh, are different from the other Midwestern states that you mentioned, is at critical times they made decisions to do to go a different way. And one of the reasons for that is the people who moved here. Um, if you were to go down Highway 35, you'll see Northfield, you no doubt seen you know, signs to it. You've probably been there. Uh, Northfield's named after John North. Uh, he came out in, in 1849 from upstate New York. He's very much characteristic of the sensibility of, the, of that new wave of Minnesotans who came in and not only um, populated the area, but also took over politically. They're the ones who would create the, the Republican Party. They're the ones who would establish the agenda. And North, and, and North would be an example of the kind of person who would booster Minnesota. He would send letters and pamphlets and newspaper articles to newspapers out east touting the, 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 the desirability of, of living in Minnesota. This is going to be the New England of the West. This is a term that, that, that several philosophers and historians of the time, policymakers and clergymen, used to characterize Minnesota, the New England of the West, and all of that was intended to reflect um, not only what, what the wilderness could be, I mean it was almost a theological mission to civilize the frontier, to bring Protestantism, um, ecumenicalism to, to the frontier, and to bring within senses of reform. They are the ones who basically kind of made, I think, Minnesota, certainly in the 1850s and later in the 1860s, uh, a, a place that would distinguish itself from the other Midwestern states. We've been talking with Bill Green, the author of the new book entitled Degrees of Freedom, a history of African Americans and civil rights movements in Minnesota from 1865 to 1912. I'm John Lauk, your host of Heartland History. Our broadcast today was produced by Dana Brown. Thank you for joining us today, Thank Bill. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you again for tuning in to Heartland History. If you would like more information about the Midwestern History Association, visit us at midwesternhistory.com. You'll have access to information about memberships, news about upcoming conferences, calls for papers, and panel proposals related to Midwestern history. You might also be interested in subscribing to the print journal Middle West Review or reading our online journal Studies in Midwestern History. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, and you can find us on Facebook. Until next time.